This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors, such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors, or authors, are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. According to Britannica.com, Zionism is a Jewish nationalist movement that has had as its goal the creation and support of a Jewish national state in Palestine, the ancient homeland of the Jews. Though Zionism originated in Eastern and Central Europe in the latter part of the 19th century, it is in many ways a continuation of the ancient achievement of the Jews and of the Jewish religion to the historical region of Palestine, where one of the hills of ancient Jerusalem was called Zion. ADL.org says, Anti-Zionism is opposition to Zionism, the movement for the self-determination and statehood of the Jewish people in their ancestral homeland, the land of Israel. Anti-Zionism is often expressed explicitly or implicitly in the rejection of Jewish nationhood and the right to self-determination. The vilification of individuals and groups associated with Zionism and the downplaying or negation of the historic and spiritual Jewish connection to the land of Israel. This is Decoding Cults and I'm your host Palsy. You are listening to Lev Tahor Part 1. I know it's been a while, I had some things I needed to sort out, but I'm so happy to be back. I hope you've all been very well. The group we will be looking at over the next few episodes was a request from one of my listeners. In this week's episode, we will look at the early life of the leader and the origins of this group. I would like to apologize in advance if I mispronounce any of the words or places in this series. Erez Shlomo Albans was born on 5 November 1962 in Kiryat Hayovel, Jerusalem. His parents, Phineas and Yochavet, had been part of the Mahanot Haolem Zionist movement. This is a movement which works towards the bettering of Israeli society by promoting social equality. To do so, it enables and encourages members to become active in its projects that benefit Israeli society. The two met when they had enlisted in the Nahal, which is an Israeli military youth organization, and they served together at the Kibbutz Hulta. According to Judaism for Dummies, a kibbutz is a collective farm supporting a democratic and socialistic ideal of shared responsibility and benefit from the land. The Albans were secular Jews, which meant that they were not really practicing Jews, and they were not a very well-off family. 
Shlomo was an only child and was said to be curious and an imaginative child. He also had a great affinity for animals and nature and would often go walking in the woods. Shlomo attended a secular school and although he wasn't the top performing student in his class, he was deemed intelligent enough to be accepted into the class for gifted children. He was a member of his local scouts and was said to have a keen sense of right or wrong, so much so that he would often stand up for fellow classmates who were being bullied. In 1975, Shlomo was going to turn 13. This meant that he was nearing his bar mitzvah. A bar mitzvah, or bat mitzvah for girls, is a great coming-of-age milestone for children who grew up in the Jewish faith. Girls bat mitzvah at age 12 and one day. Traditionally, girls would then need to learn the ways of keeping a home. Boys bar mitzvah at the age of 13 years and one day. The boys are then expected to don the teflon and perform daily prayers in a group. Teflon are two small leather boxes with compartments that contain passages from the Torah. The boxes are attached to the head and arm by leather straps. Boys and girls need to learn Hebrew so that they can read from the Torah and must additionally learn enough Jewish history and law to understand the context of what they will be reading. Historically, they would celebrate with a festive meal, but it has become much more commonplace for them to have a huge party. As Shlomo was approaching his coming of age, he started having questions about his faith. He read up as much as he could and spent so much time in the school library that there were a few times when the janitor needed to be called back as he had been locked in the library. It was around this time that Shlomo met a young man called Yosef Yagen through relatives. Yosef was a Haredi youth, which basically meant that he was strictly orthodox. Yosef taught Shlomo the code method when reading the Bible which was basically where you skip over letters at regular intervals and then you should uncover meaningful words. Shlomo's parents were not very happy with this new obsession with religion. They had fought hard for the right to choose education. It was completely against what they stood for. They even forbade Shlomo from going to a synagogue. So he started to learn more about his faith, but in secret. During his studies, Shlomo came across information on an ultra-Orthodox sect called Satma. This group is said to be extremely conservative. They reject modern culture and are completely anti-Zionist. In 1976, Shlomo was enrolled at Denmark High School, which was a secular school in Jerusalem. His history teacher, Dr. Abraham Fuchs, was an observing Jew and even wore kippah which is around head covering. Shlomo would pepper Dr. Fuchs with questions about the faith. Dr. Fuchs, realizing that Shlomo had a great interest in the faith, invited him to visit one evening at his yeshiva. A yeshiva is a school for Jewish study where they focus on learning the Torah and the Talmud. Shlomo's parents were not very big on the idea of him going to the yeshiva. But the teacher promised them that he would ensure that Shlomo would not, quote, suddenly become religious. In an article, his mother Yokovet explained that she was under the impression that the entire class was going. She stated, 
If I'd known that he was the only one going, I wouldn't have let it happen. Shlomo was enthralled by the yeshiva and had found a sense of community there. Within a few weeks, he had started wearing a kippah and a prayer shawl. He started keeping kosher. Now, I'm just going to give you a highish level breakdown of what kosher means. It will be relevant later in the story. All dietary laws which the Jews follow come from the Torah. Jewish dietary laws are known as kashrut. These are split into food and combinations of foods that are allowed, which is known as kosher. And foods and combination of foods that are not allowed are known as treif. Kosher meat comes from animals which have cloven hooves and chew their cud, like cows, sheep and goats. Some animals which are considered trife are pigs, camels and rabbits. Domesticated fowl, like chickens, quail and turkey, are considered kosher, but birds of prey, like eagles and the like, are seen as not kosher. Even though some animals are seen as kosher, their meat must be slaughtered according to Jewish customs to be deemed as such. And even then, certain parts of the animal, like the hindquarters, are not kosher, as it contains the sciatic nerve. Only seafood with fins and scales are deemed kosher. So, no shellfish. Reptiles, insects and amphibians are also not kosher. According to the Kashrut, there is a biblical prohibition against cooking an animal in its mother's milk. This means that meat and dairy products can never be consumed together. Basically, you can't have a cheeseburger or a pepperoni pizza. Meat must be cooked well done and there cannot be any pink as blood is not kosher. If there is a blood spot in an egg, it cannot be consumed and must be thrown away. Non-meat or dairy, foods like fruit, vegetables, herbs, grain, fungus and nuts are neutral and can be eaten with either meat or dairy. Even though these are seen as neutral, they need to be checked for insects because we know those are not kosher. It is believed that the status of kosher foods can be transferred to kitchen utensils and plates. So Jewish families keep two sets of each, one for meat products and one for dairy. They will even have separate wash basins for each and, in most cases, a separate stove. What I did find interesting is that honey is not considered an animal product, so it's kosher. But bees, which are insects, are not. When Shlomo asked his parents if he could leave the secular school, they refused. They had fought hard for their right to a secular education. Shlomo, however, rebelled against this and ran away from home, hiding among the Haredi yeshivas. Shlomo's parents got the police and the welfare authorities involved in searching for him. Eventually, with the help of a rabbi, they came to a compromise and allowed Shlomo to attend the Merkaz Harav Yeshiva. According to merkazharav.org.il, Yeshivat Merkaz Harav, the mother of Zionistic Yeshivot, is the very first Zionist Yeshiva and the flagship for the Dati Liumi, national religious community. The Yeshiva is made up of hundreds of students and thousands of its alumni function as rabbis, teachers, military officers and scholars and are deeply involved in public affairs. 
Shlomo thrived at the yeshiva at first, managing to gain a great amount of Torah knowledge in a short span of time. However, one year in, he called his mother and stated that he was not happy with the yeshiva. He told her that he didn't want to be with the hypocritical religious types. As Shlomo was now 15, his parents could no longer impose their authority. I found in two sources that at 15 they are seen as adults, but other sources state that it's only at 18, so maybe it was different in the 1970s. For the next two years, Shlomo visited a few different yeshivas around Israel and found the teachings of the Satmar sect very intriguing. This sect was formed by Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, who was a staunch anti-Zionist and believed as long as the state of Israel was around, the Messiah would not be able to come back to his chosen people. Shlomo rejected his perceived Zionist name of Erez and also his surname Albans. From that point on, he wanted to be known as Shlomo Halbrans. In a later interview with Shay Fogelman, he stated, quote, The Zionist state must be annulled and quickly from the Torah's point of view, because that same outlook, other peoples must not be enslaved. The Jewish people must wait in exile for redemption and the coming of the Messiah. I pray every day for this to happen, but I would be happy if it's done without any bloodshed. End quote. In 1979, at the age of 17, an arranged match was made and Shlomo married Malka Azulai. There is not much known about her past, besides the fact that she had been raised secular and had recently become religious. The couple moved to Safed, where they lived for six years. During this time, they had three children together, and Shlomo ran the Brashlav Yeshivat. By 1985, the couple and their children moved to Jerusalem. Here, Shlomo claimed himself a rabbi, even though he had never received shmika, which is kind of like being ordained by a Jewish authority who could ordain him. Not only that, but he also opened his own yeshiva, which he called Lev Tahor. In Hebrew, this is pure heart. They started off with a group of twelve. But as Shlomo began to give public lectures and speak to people on the street, his charisma and persuasiveness brought in more followers. It is said that Shlomo modeled many of his teachings after that of the Satmar movement. He would teach his followers that Israel was evil and that it would be destroyed. He additionally focused on the three vows of atonement. One, not to migrate en masse and by force to the land of Israel. 2. Not to provoke the nations. 3. Not to establish independent rule. The third one is a little bit ironic to me, as he would go on to rule his followers with an iron fist. He furthermore forbade his followers from speaking Hebrew, as he saw this as Zionist. They could only use it for prayer and to study religious texts. They were only allowed to speak Yiddish. During the 1980s, there was a lot of tension between secular and orthodox Jews. These were around many things, where the two factions clashed like having shops open and people working on the Sabbath. Shlomo started taking part in the Haredi demonstrations in the mid to late 80s. 
and would even put up posters in the streets denouncing the state. It was at that time when he and some of his followers popped up on the security services radar. They were being investigated for having Islamic tides. On the 1st of August 1990, just as the Gulf War was about to begin, he told his followers that this was a sign that there was an immediate danger to their lives, should they remain in Israel. He said that it was predicted in the Torah that Israel would be turned into a desert. The group of around 30 packed up and moved to a neighborhood called Williamsburg in Brooklyn, New York, in the USA. Now, this is just my opinion, but I have a feeling that the war was not the actual threat and that Shlomo was more so trying to evade the Israeli authorities. A few parents of the followers who had left for America became concerned that Shlomo was brainwashing their children and they went to the local Israeli authorities. But there was nothing that they could do as the followers were considered to be adults and were seen to have left of their own free will. The Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn welcomed the group. Brooklyn has a huge Jewish community. In a 2018 article on hadassahmagazine.org, they stated that there were approximately 600,000 Jews in the Brooklyn borough, and before that, there were approximately 900,000 in the 1940s. In my opinion, I could see why he chose the city. It's very easy to disappear among such a huge amount of people. In Brooklyn, Shlomo opened the yeshiva, which he obviously called Lev Tahor again, and he really started to flex his cult leader muscles. He declared that he wanted his followers to become pure by eliminating all worldly influences. He further stated that modernity corrupts the spirit, so encouraged piety and modesty, especially in women. Let's start with his dietary rules. As discussed earlier in this episode, Shlomo started keeping kosher in his early teens when he came to his religion. But these rules were not enough. Meat was only deemed kosher if Shlomo was present when the animal was butchered. He also forbade the consumption of chicken and eggs as he believed them to be genetically engineered, which made them non-kosher. They were, however, allowed the flesh and eggs of geese. The followers needed to ensure that all vegetables were peeled as they may contain fungal spores or insects. Can you imagine having to always peel your tomatoes? Anyway, rice, green onions and leafy greens were also not allowed because of the aforementioned reasons. Followers were only allowed to drink milk if they got it from the cows themselves and all of their food from bread to preserves, even sweet treats for the children, needed to be made from scratch. Now, when we look at Dr. Hassan's bite model, point five under behavior control states that cult leaders will often regulate diet, food and drink, hunger and or fasting. As for how they needed to dress, well, ultra-Orthodox Jews dressed extremely modestly anyway. Women wear shirts which cover their arms and long skirts. Once a woman is wed, no one is allowed to see her hair. They usually wear scarves on their heads fully covering their hair, or even wigs. 
And I think in an effort to blend in, Shlomo adhered to this type of dress code, which in my mind is a lot better than what he would have the woman wear later. But we'll discuss that in our next episode. No art was allowed in the homes, even photographs. In the article, Pure as the Driven Snow or Hearts of Darkness, they state that even celebrations, including weddings, were not allowed to be photographed. The only, I guess, decor that was allowed were candlesticks and homemade embroidery or crafts made by the women in the group. Followers were also restricted to what entertainment they were allowed in their homes. No television, radios or computers were allowed. They were only allowed Jewish books approved or written by Shlomo. Certain members of the community were allowed very limited access to computers, and this was only if it were to benefit the community financially or to increase their public image. We know the latter falls under information control on the BITE model, as the leader will control information coming into and going out of his group in an effort to keep his, her or their doctrine at the forefront. It also stops any information which may show the leader in a negative light from getting to the followers. Gender separation started as early as school. Boys would start school at the age of three, where they would be taught the Yiddish alphabet. At the age of five, they would start to study the Torah, starting with Genesis. By the time they were teenagers, they would have to attend school from 7.30am to 9.30pm and mostly learn about the scriptures and Jewish law. By keeping these boys busy for 14 hours a day, he basically ensures that they will only focus on the group's doctrine and leaves very little time for any other influence to take hold. All of the boys were, and still are, strictly taught by men. Oh, and these men have zero teaching qualifications. They are just other members of the group. The girls were taught in small groups divided by age in their homes. They were taught some very basic language, including English and simple math. Mostly, they taught how to cook and sew and maintain their homes. Girls were and are still only allowed to be taught by other women in the group who, like the male teachers, do not have any qualifications. Children had few toys that they were allowed to play with. And from this meager selection, if any of the toys depicted an animal, it needed to be a kosher animal. By 1992, Shlomo's group grew, and for the most part, he had gained a good reputation among his peers in Brooklyn. However, one incident would spell the beginning of the end for the group's stay in the United States of America. Shai Fima was born in 1979 in Israel. He had moved to America with his mother Hannah, his stepfather Jackie, and three of his siblings in 1989. The family settled in New Milford, which is in the state of New Jersey. Shai was raised as a secular Jew and enjoyed most things that young boys of 12 do, like movies and sport and music. Sadly, their life in America was not all that great. Hannah's husband was abusive, and she even fled to a shelter for battered women called Shelter Our Sisters. She did this with all of her children in an effort to escape the abuse. This shelter is also based in New Jersey. 
even though they were a secular Jew family. As Shai's 13th birthday approached, Hannah wanted to hold a bar mitzvah for him. I mentioned earlier in this episode that young people who are approaching this coming of age do need to attend a yeshiva to prepare for the upcoming event. Hannah asked around, and her aunt suggested the Lev Tahor yeshiva. This yeshiva was one hour away from where they lived, so for Hannah to take Shai there would be about a 48-mile or 77-kilometer round trip. When Hannah dropped Shai off at the Lev Tahor yeshiva, Shlomo told Hannah that he saw, quote, a light in Shai's face, and told her that Shai was destined to become a great rabbi. I don't know about you, but reading that statement sent shivers down my spine. From the 16th to the 20th of February 1992, which was the day of the bar mitzvah, Shai spent many hours, and at times even overnight, at the yeshiva in preparation. Hannah noticed that in the very short time that her son had spent with Shlomo and his wife Malka, he had started wearing traditional Hasidic clothes and become, in her opinion, obsessed with the religion. He had even been spending a lot of time with the couple after his bar mitzvah, and although Hannah wasn't very happy about it, she did allow it, for a short time. Each time Hannah went to pick her son up, there would be a heated exchange of words between her and the couple regarding Shai's upbringing. They insisted that he stay with them and be taken out of public school, going as far as claiming Hannah was living a sinful life. I was wondering why Shai would want to live with the Halbruns, and then I realized that he'd been taken away from his native country, then was probably witness to domestic abuse, and was at that time living in a shelter with his mother and three other siblings. His mother was most likely struggling to make ends meet and may not have been able to give her child all the time and attention that she would have liked to. Shloma and Malka, on the other hand, were most likely showering this child with love and attention and given Shai the impression of a stable home. Remember, leaders and even members of high-control groups tend to love-bomb any potential new followers to bring them into the fold. By the 15th of March, Hannah had had enough. When she went to pick her son up, she was determined that he would not return. Once again, a heated argument ensued. Shlomo said to Hannah, You are not going to see good, not in this world and not in the next world, and you see that every day something bad is going to happen to you. You're going to be sorry for this. Malka in turn told Shai that she, not Hannah was his mother, and another member of the group who was present at the time tried to restrain Hannah and stop her from taking her own son. Hannah managed to get away and call the police and her husband for assistance. It seems to have worked, because Shai had gone home with her. Over the next few weeks, followers of Leftahor and even Shlomo himself would contact Hannah. They would claim how much they loved the boy and that they were extremely sad that he was not with them, and that she should allow him back to the yeshiva. Shai did try to run away and get back to the group, but he was found at a train station and brought back to his mother. Life seemed to return to normal for the FEMA household. Shai even attended a baseball game on the 3rd of April 1992. The next night, 
he went to spend the evening at his stepdad's house. Now, I have a sneaking suspicion that Shai had either been followed or had secretly been in contact with the group, because that evening, Mordecai Weiss, one of Shlomo's followers, showed up at the stepfather's house. He somehow persuaded Jackie to let Shai spend the night at the yeshiva. Now, I have no idea what Mordecai said to Jackie, but it must have been pretty persuasive as he had been involved in getting Shai away from the group in the first place. Mordecai promised that Shai could be picked up that very next evening. I think you can all guess how this turned out. When Hannah went to pick her son up, Shlomo and Malka claimed that they had no idea where Shai was. The police were called again, and by June of 1992, the state police and the FBI were involved. It was believed that Shai was being hidden by the Hasidic community and could even have been snuck out of the country. Eventually, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and even Belgian authorities assisted in the investigation, but no one could find Shai. Michael Reuven, Shai's biological father, even tried to negotiate to find out his son's whereabouts all the way from Israel, but to no avail. Shlomo was arrested shortly after Shai's disappearance, but was released. Apparently, the New York elections were coming up, and the district attorney did not want to piss off the ultra-Orthodox community. The February of 1993, both Shlomo and Malka were arrested again. This arrest was made when Shai's biological father, Mikhail Rubin, working alongside the FBI, recorded wired conversations between Shlomo and himself. Bail was set at $250,000, which is just over $513,000 or 9 million rand in today's terms. The Central Rabbinical Congress, based in Brooklyn, raised the money to pay for the bail. According to crccashrust.org, the Central Rabbinical Congress, or CRC, is a consortium of many Orthodox Jewish groups. Their main function is to provide kosher certification to food processing plants. Shlomo's trial started in January of 1994. Eight days after the start of the trial, Shai showed up, and he wanted to testify. But to his mother's dismay, he stated that he had run away voluntarily, and that he would not give up the name of the people who had helped him, as he didn't want to get them into trouble. Shlomo was found guilty of conspiracy to commit kidnapping in the fourth degree, and sentenced to 6 to 12 years in prison, and the charges against Malka were dropped. Shlomo was said to have received many privileges while he was incarcerated. He appealed his sentence and it was reduced to 2 to 6 years, of which he only served 2, and was released on parole in 1996, still claiming his innocence. As an aside, Shai was interviewed by the New York Times in April of 2001. He had parted ways amicably with the group, but still had some contact with them. At that time, he told the reporter, quote, I'm religious, but not the way I was. The article also stated that he had reconciled with his family and was living happily in New York. In our next episode, we will continue with the history of Lev Tahor, 
and also some of the harsher practices that Shlomo would impose on his followers. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It will go a long way into improving the podcast and help others find it. Please invite your family and friends to listen as well. If you are listening on YouTube, please subscribe and like the video. You can also leave a comment if you want. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. If there are any topics around the workings of cults which you would like further explanation on, or if there is a cult like this one that you would like to hear about, email me or post it in the Facebook group. Remember to go to check out By Design Crafts SA and Endeavor AV and tell them that I sent you. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.